Let's start again where we started this morning. Share this verse or say this verse with me again. Read it off the screen. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Now, this is the prayer of the man that wrote this psalm. Oh God, will you not revive us again? We spoke this morning about the nature, the character of revival. We don't seek revival in the sense we're seeking some mystical spiritual experience or some emotional high. Technically, we're seeking the reviver. We are drawing closer to the Lord. We're ascending that summit. I gave you that picture this morning. What's at the top of the summit? Jesus. Jesus. Paul said, for me to live is... Christ to die is gain. That's all we're doing is that we are moving toward a deeper commitment, relationship with the Lord Jesus. And this is, in essence, the revived life. And I trust this continues to be your prayer. On page 10, you see our revival truth. The revived life flows from a new understanding of and response to the holiness of God. Each night we will have a revival truth, a principle from Scripture. We'll have a text from God's Word and we'll immerse ourselves in these principles that help us gain a deeper understanding into this thing we call the revived life. A new understanding of and response to the holiness of God. So the word holy becomes a key word for us tonight. Now let's think for a moment how we use that word holy. Well, it's used frivolously in our society. Uh, Someone will talk about a holy cow or holy smoke, holy mackerel. I don't know where that one came from. We use the word in a negative way. We brand somebody a holy roller Or if they're acting a little uppity, we talk of them as having a holier-than-thou attitude. Or if a child's a little wild, we'll brand him or her as a holy terror. Now let me just say, as God's people, we need to be careful how we use words that are important to God. And this word is very important to God. We ought not take it frivolously. We ought not to use it loosely. We need to reclaim the vocabulary of our faith. And so tonight we're going to talk about the holiness of God. Take your Bible. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, I'm going to get you there quick. If you open your Bible to the very middle, you should hit the book of Psalms. It starts with a P, but it's pronounced Psalms. If you'll then move to the right, you go through Proverbs. You'll go through Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, and then you'll find Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, Pastor, you didn't happen to preach Isaiah 6 last Sunday night, did you? I just (laughs) want to make sure. We're, We're on the same page here. We're tracking together. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, before we jump into the text, I'm I like to give background, some context. Isaiah is a prophet. He is considered probably the most significant prophet prophet in the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, The scope of his influence was felt all the way to the coming of Jesus because Isaiah spoke often in describing the coming Messiah. 
Isaiah was ministering during a politically a tumultuous period of time. Uh, There was a lot of movement among the great empires of the world, and Isaiah often pointed how God was ruling and reigning sovereignly and even determining those earthly events. He had a high view of God. Isaiah seemed to have a close relationship with Jewish royalty. He was either a member of the royal family or he was a close friend to the royal family. He had the ear of the king. He was a man who had tremendous influence, tremendous responsibility, and great respect. This is the man we meet in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, And the house was filled with smoke. All right, let's pause for just a moment. Now I'm going to say something, and I'm going to say it again over the course of these days. Repetition is how we learn. If you and I want to be revived, then we're going to have to come to God. We're going to have to draw near to God, be restored in our relationship with God. If we're going to go and and be with God, now hear me, we must come to God on His terms. You can't expect God to come to you on your terms. He is God, you are not. It is His prerogative to command, if you're going to come to me, you must come to me on my terms. One of His terms is understanding and responding correctly to His holiness. We meet Isaiah and he's in the midst of a a crisis. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah had reigned for 50 years and for the most part was a good and godly man and God blessed the nation during his reign. But Uzziah has died. Another will rise to take his place. It's a time of political transition. Will the next king embrace the faith and honor the covenant that Uzziah did? Isaiah finds himself in the temple. The right response. In times of uncertainty, we should turn to God. We should seek God. Isaiah finds himself in the temple, prayer and seeking the Lord. And Isaiah has an encounter with God. I'm praying in these days, you will have an encounter with God. A life-changing encounter with God. Now, it may not be quite as uh, as graphic, quite as uh, extravagant as Isaiah's encounter, but it can be equally life-changing, an encounter with the Lord. In this encounter with God, Isaiah walks away. He's a different man. And his primary takeaway from this personal encounter is a new understanding of and appreciation of God's holiness. As he was praying, Isaiah said, suddenly I I saw the Lord and he was sitting on a throne. That's his rightful place. He's sitting on the throne of the universe. The question is, of course, tonight, is he sitting on the throne of your heart? Are you in a place of surrender and submission? 
And Isaiah said the train of his robe filled the temple. He gets this incredible picture of God ruling and reigning in his majesty. And he says, as I watched, suddenly there were these angelic beings, the seraphim. And what did they say over and over again? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's start with an understanding of the holiness of God. For some of you, this is going to be God 101. In other words, you're familiar with this, but I don't want to leave anybody behind as we are on this journey together. So let's start very basic. Number one, God's holiness is one of his attributes or character qualities. That fancy word attribute, that's a word students of the Bible use to describe God, the unique character qualities of God. I challenged you this morning to begin to pray, Lord, teach me your ways. Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. Well, as God honors that prayer, you begin to learn more about God, God's character qualities, or as we use the term, his attributes. For instance, the Bible says that God is love. The Scripture tells us that God is kind and merciful. These are his character qualities. The Scriptures tell us that God is all-knowing, all-wise. We speak of his omniscience. And God is all-powerful, His omnipotence. So as we put together these character qualities, we get a fuller portrait of who God is so that we know how to respond to God. Preeminent, in a sense. Preeminent is this character quality of holiness. If you miss this one, you've really missed who God is, and you'll not respond correctly to the Lord. To say God is holy means he is completely separate from sin. Now, any of these attributes are mind-blowing. I mean, talk about a, a work of futility, trying to understand an infinite God with a finite mind, all right? You're never going to get all of God. That's good. I want a God that's bigger than me, all right? I like that. At the same time, he wants to be known. He is eager to reveal himself so that we can know enough to have a relationship with him. When we use the word holy, the the root meaning of the word literally means to separate. And in the context here, God is completely separate from sin. There's absolutely nothing sinful about God. Now think about Isaiah's encounter with the Lord. He's standing there, he's just gazing on God in his majesty and glory, and suddenly these angelic creatures, the seraphim, appear. The seraphim are positioned between Isaiah and the Lord. In other words, they are between Isaiah and God. The seraphim serve in a symbolic sense as the guardians of God's holiness. Now, I say symbolic because God is not dependent on any creation, He's completely self-sufficient. But in a symbolic sense, those seraphim say, this is as far as you can go, Isaiah. Can't go any farther. This is the only place in Scripture you'll find the name seraphim, this unique class of angels. They're mentioned another place, Revelation 4. They're called the four living creatures there. And you can read a similar description. So these seraphim are here. Now watch. They've got six wings. Not all angels have wings. These are the only angels described with wings, and it's not two. They've got six. With one pair, they 
cover their faces. We who live in closest proximity to the Holy One, we're not worthy to look on Him. And with a pair of wings, they cover their feet as if to say, and we're not worthy for Him to gaze on us. And with two, they fly. And they live and exist in closest proximity to God. And again, their symbolic function is to remind us God is holy, we are not. And unless I'm willing to come God's way, I can't go any farther in a fellowship with Him. Number three on this point of understanding God's holiness. God's holiness is given prominence over His other character qualities. Now, be very careful. I want you to make sure you you hear me because I know we've got students of the Bible. I didn't say God's holiness is more important. All of His character qualities are equally important. I didn't say they are more necessary or essential. All are equally necessary and essential. But as we see God in Scripture, this attribute of holiness is given more prominence. It's given more attention. Think about the song that these angels are singing. Constantly singing in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, Threefold repetition, holy, holy, holy. It may be an early indication of what we know to be the triune nature of God. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. Often in Hebrew, the language of the Bible, repetition is used for emphasis. You repeat something to give it more importance and more significance in that particular context. Now, hear what they're not singing. They're not singing love, love, love. Is God loving? Absolutely. His love is an infinite love. His love is an incomprehensible love. It's an unconditional love. We'll talk about the love of God in the course of our days together. But I find it interesting. They're not singing love, love, love. They're not singing judge, judge, judge either. They're not singing condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Thankfully so. Though all of these things are true of the character and nature of God, what is the one attribute that's given prominence above all the others in the presence of God? It is His holiness. So if I've got to come, if I'm wanting to come to God, I have to come to God on His terms. One of those terms is I must understand and respond to His holiness. Holy, holiness, hallowed, righteous, sanctified, saint. These are all words that are related to the word holy. They're used over a thousand times in Scripture. Do you know that the word holy is connected to God's name more than any other descriptive word in the Bible? You know Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His what? holy name. In Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus was teaching us to pray, hallowed be your name, another word for holy. The third person of the triune God is designated the Holy Spirit. You're holding in your lap a book that has on it somewhere the words holy Bible. The seventh day, the Sabbath day was designated to be a 
holy day. When men and women would meet with God in the course of the Bible, the place where they would meet with God would be designated holy ground. There's something sacred about this place because I had an encounter with the holy God. Somewhere I know that you've had some teaching on the tabernacle. Shane talked about it earlier. The tabernacle was that tent-like structure that was the focal point of worship in the Old Testament. Now, once you came through the outer court, the open court, there was a tent structure with two compartments. Compartment number one was called the holy place. Only the priests could go in there. Compartment number two, where that mysterious Ark of the Covenant was kept, was called the what? Holy of Holies. Only one man could go in there, and that on only one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest. So they would take him first, and they would put holy garments. That's what they were called. He didn't wear them any other time but for this occasion. He was anointed with holy oil. They would be burning holy incense. He wore a turban on his head with the words, Holiness unto the Lord. Do you think God was trying to impress something on his people? Absolutely. I am holy. If you want to come to me, you must come on my terms. That means understanding and responding to my holiness. A preacher of generations past observed holiness may be said to be a transcendental attribute. It runs through the rest and casts luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. I love that description, an attribute of attributes. Psalm 29, 2, give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Do you know as you come into more intimacy with God and grow in your understanding of God, you will find this attribute of holiness to be his most beautiful of all attributes. You will love him for it. Which, by the way, is the great divider between the believing and the unbelieving. The unbelieving will stand and sing about God's love all day. But I don't want a God who's going to judge me in my sin. I don't want a God who tells me I have to live a certain way. They despise His holiness. Still with me in Isaiah. Move down to verse 5. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, we're going to transition from understanding God's holiness to responding to God's holiness. Responding to God's holiness. Number one, a fresh understanding of the holiness of God brings a new awareness of sin. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, man, if I could just have that kind of encounter with God. If I could just see him like Isaiah saw him. If I had had that kind of experience. Watch how Isaiah responded. He didn't walk up and shake his hand. Slap him on the back. Way to go, God. Isaiah fell on his face. And what were the words? Woe is me. 
it was deeply troubling. Why? Because when we grow closer to the Lord in our understanding of who God is, when we cultivate deeper intimacy, suddenly our sin is more apparent. We gain this deeper understanding and awareness of our sin. Let me explain. I go to my friend the dentist. He sits me in that very comfortable leather chair. He's playing nice, soothing music in the background, right? He walks into the room, he lays me back, and then he shines that bright light right in my face. Now, I don't complain. You know why. That light is there so he can see what's going on. If he's got a drill, I want to make sure he's drilling the right tooth, right? Light. Light. As we grow closer to the light, the light of God's holy nature, suddenly things that didn't seem that out of place. Things that, that we were easily justifying and that we easily excused, suddenly those things take on a whole new appearance. This is what was happening to Isaiah. I'm praying that over the next eight days, at some point, you're going to have a woe is me moment. <laughs> I'm praying that God's going to ring your bell and mine. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I don't need this. That God's going to ring your bell, that you're going to have a woe is me moment, that there's going to be an awareness about an area of your life that God is deeply displeased with. I want to prepare you for it. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Number one, conviction is specific. Condemnation will be general. Let me explain. Here's Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. The sin that Isaiah immediately became aware of was some sin in regard to his mouth. Now, that's a problem for a preacher. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet of prophets, and he doesn't detail, so we're not sure, but it was something about the way he was using his mouth. That's where God rang his bell. But I want you to see that it was very specific, general. Nothing's good about me. Everything's wrong. That's not God's convicting word. God doesn't work like that. When God begins to convict, watch, he puts his finger, just like a surgeon's scalpel, he puts it right where the issue is. You don't have to play guessing games. You don't have to wallow in false guilt. God is very specific. And we must respond specifically as well. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but when I hear someone stand and pray, Lord, forgive us our many sins, I'm not questioning their sincerity, but I am questioning their accuracy. It's so easy to pray, Lord, forgive us our many sins. You know what? It's tougher to pray. Lord, forgive me for gossiping this morning. Lord, forgive me for lusting and violating my purity last night at the computer. Lord, forgive me for my anger and my lack of patience with my wife, my husband. Now that is how we confess sin, specifically, as opposed to general. Here's another distinction. Conviction gives hope. Condemnation leads to despair. You know that God is in it. It's the convicting work of God when you're hopeful. Isaiah is drawn in. 
He doesn't get up and dust off his robe and walk out of the temple and say, well, I'll never measure up. There's no hope for me. God draws him in closer. God gives us hope. When you begin to hear a little voice that says something like this, God could never love you. You could never be worthy of God's love. And by the way, you can't be worthy of God's love. It's a gift. That's why we call it grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. I could never earn this. You're absolutely right. I'll never deserve this. Of course not. But God wants to show off his attribution of grace by giving you what you don't deserve. So when God speaks, he draws us in. There's a hopefulness here. As opposed to the enemy who wants to bury us in guilt and self-condemnation. Second observation in responding to the holiness of God. Confession of sin results in forgiveness and cleansing. Confession of sin results in forgiveness and cleansing. Isaiah's standing there. Seraphim are flying around, you know. He's just confessed. He's acknowledged. I'm a man of unclean lips. You're right, God. That's not right with you, and that's not pleasing to you, and I need to obey you. Suddenly, one of those crazy seraphim flies over to the altar, takes a coal, brings it back, and touches it to the lips of his mouth. Burns. Hear me. It's a good burn. It's a good burn. When God brings conviction, typically brokenness accompanies that conviction you're broken. It hurts, but it's a good pain. It's a necessary pain. It's a pain that is part of a healing process. Someone has described a life action conference like major surgery without anesthesia. <laughs> it's painful. Told you this morning, I'm going to shoot straight with you. Shane's going to shoot straight with you. We're going to speak the truth in love. And it's going to be painful for some of you to take ownership and acknowledge, that's right, God, you... You've been wanting to change this in me for years. And it's going to be painful to take the steps of repentance. But these are the steps of being restored in that relationship with God. And remember, times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord, that your people may rejoice in you. Rejoicing comes, and times of refreshing come. But we've got to deal with this ugly fact, the fact of our disobedience. If it was possible to wear out a promise, and it's not, a promise of God, if it's possible, I would have worn out this promise a long time ago. Let's read it together off the screen. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let me unpack it for you. If we confess. The word confess in the original language is a compound word. It literally means to agree with. What is the confession of sin? It's what Isaiah did. I'm a man of unclean lips. God, I agree with you that that anger shouldn't be there and I shouldn't live in subservience to my anger. Lord, I agree with you that I shouldn't be yielding to the lust and I have been. You stop making excuses. You stop justifying and rationalizing and blaming others. 
You take ownership of your sin. If we agree with God about our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those of you who have studied the Gospels, you know that sadly, tragically, those who are most hostile to the message of Jesus were the religious crowd. Not religious in the sense there was any sincerity of devotion there. Religious in the sense that outwardly they'd conformed to man-made rules and codes of belief, but their hearts were far from God. Well, one of the groups that gave him fits, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, he was always having these hard conversations with the Pharisees. It, it reaches climax during Passion Week. And in Matthew 23, Jesus basically unloads on them. It's the most extended, uh, the, the most detailed of, of his uh, uh, exposing their, their issues. Uh, there's a word that he had for them. He called it them over and over again. It's, what, it's the term that he used more than any other. You hypocrites. You know the passage I'm talking about. You hypocrites. Eight times in Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites. Now, that word means a little different. It is, is used a little differently today than it was originally. We think of hypocrisy, someone who says one thing and does something else. And that shade of meaning is still there. But in the original, a little deeper understanding. When Jesus used the word hypocrite, this is interesting. He went over to Greek culture and he pulled a word out of Greek culture. Greek actors were called hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, the reason they were called hypocrites is because they wore masks. If a young man was playing an old man in a play, he wore an old man mask, and he spoke through the mask. Sorry, ladies, there were no actresses in ancient Greece. It was all men. So if you had a women's role, they had to wear a woman's mask and speak through the mask. Jesus was saying of these Pharisees, now watch, you're wearing masks. You're pretending to be something that you're not. Outwardly, you look like whitewashed graves, but inside, nothing but dead men's bones. We wear our masks. Shane talked about that this morning. Pastor, I fear more lying goes on the first five minutes of church than any other time of the week. Because how many times do you walk through that door, someone shakes your hand, how you doing? Doing great. No, you're not. Your life's a mess. The wheels are falling off. Doing great. You're wearing your mask. You got it in place. Wearing your mask. We were in... Manchester, Tennessee, during a testimony service. This was on Sunday morning. Woman stood up, Sunday morning, Southern Baptist Church, crowded, full of folks. And she said, before I share testimony, can I do something? And I said, okay, you never know. These are kind of interesting times. You, you never know what someone's going to do or say. And she pulls out a makeup bag, and then she proceeds to take her cleanser and remove her makeup. It was a little painful to watch, I'll be honest with you. And then she said this, I've been wearing a mask. Our family's here all the time, every time the doors are open, and we've given you the impression we've got everything in shape, and we're great, and our kids are great, and it's not. Our lives 
are falling apart. And I need my church family to know that I need their prayers. And I need their encouragement right now. Never forgot that. I never will. It's a profound moment in the life of that woman and of that congregation. I mentioned to you this morning that I hosted my first Life Action Summit in 1996. I was in my early 30s. I was pastoring a, a well-respected First Baptist Church in the Texas Panhandle, Borger, Texas. Previous pastor had been a mutual friend of ours, Paul Burleson. You know who I'm talking about. A well-respected church. Life Action came to town, and the reason I brought Life Action to my church was because Church members needed to get right with God, right? That's what I told myself. These folks need to get right with God. In the course of those days, God rang my bell. For Isaiah, it was unclean lips. For me, it was unclean eyes. You wouldn't technically call it pornography, but it was still exposing myself to immorality and impurity. When I decided to get right with God and to, to, to be honest with God and with myself, I also knew I needed to be honest with my wife. And men, that's the first conversation you have. You go to your wife and you seek her forgiveness and ask for her prayers. She graciously granted that. And then I shared with her, I feel impressed that I need to share this publicly. Not all private sin needs to be shared publicly. You need to be discerning there. But I knew as the pastor of that church, I needed to share this publicly. So on the Sunday morning following the Life Action Revival Summit, I stood before my congregation and I shared with them what I just shared with you. I told Patty going into this, I'm not sure how this is going to come out. This is such a well-respected church, I'm not sure they're going to want a pastor who's damaged goods, a pastor who has failed. And I told her, I said, I don't, I don't know that our ministry will survive this, but I know I have to obey God. And so I came to the end of that service, and I shared what I shared. And, and then I said this, I'm going to go back to our church parlor. If there are any men in this room who are struggling as I've been struggling, and you'd like to establish a mutual accountability, if you want to come right after the service and just meet with me, we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to give us victory in this area. Then I left. My associate stepped up to end the service. That was a long, long walk back to that church parlor. I can still hear my leather-soled shoes echoing on the terrazzo tile. And it seemed an interminably long time as I stood back there by myself. And then the first man in the room was my chairman of deacons walked over, hugged me, and said, Pastor, I've struggled too, and God bless you for your honesty, and we're going to get through this. And then another man, and another man, and another man. And before it was done, 60 men were standing in that room in a circle, confessing and crying, humbling ourselves before the Lord and one another. And God did a great work in our life, in the life of our congregation. I mentioned to you that, uh, that coal that the angel took and 
and he put it on his lips. It's interesting. Where did that coal come from? The angel went to the altar, and he took that coal from the altar. Now, what goes on at the altar? The altar is the place where the sacrifice is burnt. You see, that coal had been saturated, saturated with the blood of those animals that had been sacrificed. That coal was dripping with blood. Hear me as we're closing. What was the cross all about? God showing you His love, that was part of it. God saving you from hell, that was part of it. God giving you the opportunity to know Him, have a relationship with Him, and live as part of His forever family, that's part of it. But don't shortchange the cross. The cross was Jesus Christ making it possible for you and I to be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. That's the cross. Don't shortchange, don't cheapen the death of Jesus by excusing and rationalizing away your sin. When so much was given so that we could be set free, forgiven. Take your summit booklet and turn with me to page 26. says at the top, complete spiritual. Now, I know you're figuring this out. These services aren't your typical hour, hour and 15-minute services, all right? We're here to do business with God, and sometimes that takes a little longer. We're going to be mindful of your time. So just stop looking at the watch, looking at the iPhone, just... Hang with me here, okay? Complete spiritual. The complete spiritual is kind of a takeoff on a complete physical. You know, you go to the doctor and he, she gives you a complete physical. I turned 50 a few years ago and the phrase complete physical took on a little different meaning for me. A little more intrusive than it had been. You know what I'm saying? All right, guys. You young bucks, you'll get there. The Christian's Life and Growth Evaluation. The goal of this checkup is to identify problem areas, affirm positive areas, and help us see ourselves as God sees us. And then we start with Psalm 139, which is a prayer, and I hope is your prayer tonight. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Number one, the new birth. Look at number one. I have fully agreed with God about the sin in my life and have turned away from it so that I can live the kind of life Jesus died to provide. This repentance has changed the way I live, speak, and think. Now, pause just a moment. Track with me. We're not asking, did you walk an aisle? We're not asking, did you pray a prayer? Or were you baptized? Are you the member of a church? I know that most of us have done that, and that's, th- those are good things to do in obedience to the saving work of God, but we don't do them in place of the saving work of God. So my question to you is, have you agreed with God about your sin? Turn from that sin, is there visible repentance? Would you circle yes or no? Take your pen. Circle yes, circle no. Now, class, let's keep our eyes on our own paper for the next few minutes, okay? 
Number two, I have placed all my trust and complete confidence in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, trusting in no one and nothing else. Would you circle yes or would you circle no? Your parents' faith will not get you to heaven. Your grandmother's prayers, as precious as they are, will not get you to heaven. I have placed my complete trust in Christ alone. Number three, I have full assurance from the Holy Spirit that I have been fully forgiven and accepted as God's child. The old evangelist asked, do you know that you know that you know? Not that I'm hoping, not that I'm wanting, not that I'm wishing. Do you know that you know that you know, yes or no? Number four, the Bible teaches that a changed life is powerful evidence of true faith. It is obvious that God has changed me from the inside out, that my behavior, desires, and direction are increasingly aligning with Christ. We don't have the word perfect in there anywhere. Nobody's perfect. At the same time, I see the evidence of God's work in my life because he's changing me. And then we ask, if you circled one or more questions, no, check this box. Realize that you may not have experienced true salvation and the new birth. We're not judging. We're not evaluating that. But we're challenging you to ask yourself, do I have the saving life of Christ in my life? Now look at number two, intimacy with God. God's word, number one. I desire to read and obey the word of God. Now let me just say, you don't put what Pastor John wants you to put. You, you don't put what your Sunday school teacher wants you to put. I'm asking you to be honest right now before the Lord or this won't help you. Is it your desire to read and obey the word of God with consistency, yes or no? Number two, I take time daily, with rare exception, to read, meditate on, and memorize Scripture. More days than not, that's the idea. Number three, I often find myself thinking about singing or praying Scripture to the Lord. Is your mind saturated with the Word of God? Have you hidden God's Word in your heart, as the psalmist says, yes, no? Number four, I'm continuing to increase in my understanding of the Bible God's Word. I get it. It's making sense to me. I'm growing in my understanding. How about prayer? Number one, meaningful prayer is part of my daily life. Praying over food doesn't count. Well, that's a great testimony to ask the Lord's blessing. I'm talking about time alone with God, talking to God, intimacy with God. Number two, I'm praying regularly with others. Men, are you praying with your wives? Parents, are you praying regularly with your children? Number three, the last time I received an answer to prayer that only God could fulfill was in the last few hours, days, weeks, months, years. What will you check? The last time that you can remember God specifically answering a prayer. And number four, my prayers are heartfelt, empty words, repetitions, duty. Now look at me for just a moment. We're going to pause. You're going to finish the rest of the complete spiritual yourself. All right? I've kind of just got you going so that you understand what it is and, and a sense of of, of what the idea, what, what we're intending. This is not to be judgmental. The idea is not that we're trying to condemn you. Not at all. 
This is an examination. We've found over 40 years that God has used this as a tool to help people get honest with God about where they are spiritually. Now what this is going to probably do is surface a lot of issues. And it's going to leave you thinking, Lord, I'm, I'm a mess. <laughs> Listen, no one passes the complete spiritual. I failed it the first time I took it. I failed it the last time I took it. All right? Nobody passes. It's not the point. The point is to drive us to the Lord. To perhaps create a new sense of desperation of what God needs to do in our lives. Our complacency is killing us spiritually. Now we're going to end services in different ways each night. Here's how we're going to end tonight. I'm going to ask you just to sit and continue to work your way through the complete spiritual. Take you about ten more minutes. As you finish, and maybe you want to just bow your head to pray, to go back and say, Lord, here's where you spoke to me, and Lord, I'm taking ownership. I'm going to be coming. I'm going to be listening. My heart will be open. I trust you're going to begin to give me direction to correct some of this stuff. After you've completed the complete spiritual, maybe taking just a moment or two in prayer, then I'm going to ask you to quietly leave the room. Don't start hugging on folks and, 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 and chattering until you get outside. Let's maintain just a, a sacred silence in this room for a few moments. Now, you are welcome to stay here as long as you need. Our team members are going to take care of your kids. We're not going to leave them running in the streets, okay? We're going to take care of your children. Our team members would want you to have all the time you need to settle these matters. Everybody hear me on that? And again, when you finish, we're going to just quietly gather our things, leave. Lord willing, tomorrow night I'm going to see you at 6 p.m.